somebody. Turn your microphones off. Well, of course, my PowerPoint is now giving me a problem. Uh, please don't talk. I'm starting the webinar. Good morning, welcome. Thank you very much for coming today. I am Sharon Pearson. I am the president of Salem City Club. And we are very glad that you joined us for our fourth program. Salem City Club is in its 54th season of keeping our community informed and we're very glad that you joined us. We wouldn't be able to present our programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. Our sponsors are KMUZ Community Radio, Lugene Fulbert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home, and that's it. <laughs> our members also play a critical role in helping Salem City Club continue its mission of promoting civic engagement. Thank you to our members who have renewed their membership and or given a donation this year. After today, we'll have one more program in our 2020 Informed Voters series. Watch our website for the upcoming programs and program topics. And now, here is our program lead, Jan Margosian, who will introduce today's program and the speakers. Good morning, Jan. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, good afternoon, I'm Jan Margosian. Welcome to Salem City Club's fourth virtual program uh, in its 2020 Informed Voter Series, Ballot Measure on Campaign Finance. Speaking first this afternoon is Portland attorney, Dan Meek, a graduate of Stanford Law School who has practiced law in Portland since 1987. Before that, he was law clerk to Chief U.S. District Judge James Burns, legal counsel at the California Energy Commission and staff director of two subcommittees in the US Congress. Meek represents groups and individuals that sponsor ballot measures in Oregon. He also represents groups on election law matters in court and before the Oregon legislature and agencies. Meek and colleague Linda Williams are co-founders and co-chairs of the Independent Party of Oregon. 
Kyle Markley is a libertarian political activist and five-time candidate for elected office. He serves on the board of directors of the Libertarian Party of Oregon and founded the Statements for Liberty PAC, which helps libertarian candidates get published in the voters pamphlet. Markley was a member of the 2015-2017 Joint Interim Task Force on Campaign Finance Reform. Markley's educational background is in computer science, and he has worked in an engineering role at Intel for more than 20 years. He lives in Hillsboro. Now today, each speaker uh, has been given five minutes to discuss their position on the measure, followed by several questions from the moderator and two minutes for a closing statement. Uh, Dan, would you like to start us off? Yes, I will begin by attempting to share my screen uh, with this one. Um, can you all see that? Can you all see that? I guess you're muted. You don't know. <laughs> I, guess, I assume you can see it. Um, this is the organization Honest Elections that has been, uh, I would say, most active in campaign finance reform in Oregon over the past several years. It placed um, measures on the ballot in Multnomah County and the city of Portland, 2016 to 2018 to limit contributions in their campaigns and in more importantly, even to require that political ads for candidates or against candidates, including independent expenditure ads, identify their top five funders. The, um, the problem in Oregon has been that uh, Oregon has been one of five states with no limits on, on political campaign contributions. The, the 2015 study of the state integrity investigation of the Center for Public Integrity and Public Radio International ranked or gave Oregon these extremely bad grades on, on efforts to control or reduce corruption, including political financing. In fact, they ranked Oregon the second worst state in America when it comes to, to political finance regulation, barely beating out Mississippi. Um, measure 107, which the legislature has placed on the ballot is pretty simple says that the legislative assembly or the governing body of a city, county, or other local government can do the following things. Can limit contributions made in connection with political campaigns or the influence the election of, of any election. B, can require the disclosure of contributions or expenditures made in connection with those campaigns. C, can require that an advertisement made in connection with such campaigns identify the persons or entities that paid for the advertisement and D can limit expenditures to the extent allowed by the US Constitution. Of course, all of the above also are uh, restricted to some degree by the US Constitution and nothing in the state constitution can change that. Many supporters of measure four, one of seven that range from the League of Women Voters, Osberg, Common Cause, Independent Party, of course, um, various other organizations, here some more. Uh, various labor unions, Jobs and Justice, Alliance for Democracy, etc. And here's some more. <laughs> there are hundreds of them listed on the website of the of the campaign. The um, editorial endorsements include every paper I know of that has taken a position. I couldn't find any opposition to it. Uh, a, supporters include these papers plus the Oregonian. Well, the Oregonian there is at the bottom, uh, as well as Bedford Mail Tribune and the East Oregonian and uh, a variety of others. This, I think, measure was prompted by uh, a few things. One is that the, the skyrocketing amount of money spent on political campaigns for candidates in Oregon. 
This chart shows the trajectory since 1998. The amount spent on governor's races has gone from about $2 million to $40 million. And the contributions themselves are very large. Newt Bueller in 2018 received a couple of contributions in excess of $3 million each from Phil Knight and from the Republican Governors Association. But Kate Brown actually received uh, just as much of her money from large, very large contributions, including $2 million from the Democratic Governors Association, which consists of contributions from corporations, unions, unions and wealthy persons, a variety of union PACs, and three quarters of a million dollars from Michael Bloomberg. So uh, this is, there's an arms race on, on both, the, both sides. The spending for legislative races has increased also from about 3 million in 1996 uh, to 29 million in the year 2018. Legislative races now cost a lot. The top 10 races, which basically encompasses all the races that are, that are actually competitive, the average spent by the top 10 candidates for the Oregon House, for example, in 2016 was $825,000 each for a, for a race that can be won with as few as 12 or 13,000 votes. So you're looking at about 70 to $80 a vote, which is the highest per capita in the United States, except for New Jersey, according to the Oregonian. Uh, does money buy results? I think it does. In the Oregon legislature, whoops, uh, over the past several sessions, right around 94% of the candidates who spent the most money uh, won their races. It's very rare that a candidate who outspend, who spends more uh, loses. And in that case, it's often the case that both candidates are spending a huge amount of money and there's not much difference between them. The money for legislative races in Oregon over the past decade or so, you can see most of it comes from corporate groups, some from labor unions, some from big individual donors. Oregon is in red, the United States in general is in blue. You can see the Oregon amounts are quite a bit higher than the average of the United States. Um, the corporations and industry groups actually support, um, is that, what, what, is, what does red mean? I can't hear anyone. You are um, out of time. Oh, well, then um, let me just go to one just one slide one important thing and that is that this measure is particularly important because of the disclosure part oregon uh is one is one of the is in fact the only state in the united states that does not require political ads to identify their sources at all not even the the committee that funds them 11 states have laws requiring that the largest funders of political ads be identified in the ads themselves and that's something that measure 107 would allow, uh, allow us to do in Oregon without potential interference by the Oregon Supreme Court. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Now, can you take your slide down? Take my slide down. Stop sharing, there. There we go. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. Uh, and now, uh, Kyle Markley is going to uh, tell us his side of the story. Thank you very much, Kyle. Thank you. Supporters argue that money buys elections, but actually it doesn't. Their central claim is false. In 2016, Donald Trump was significantly outspent by four of his primary rivals. And in 2020, Joe Biden was even more significantly outspent by four of his. 
Most of all, Michael Bloomberg spent a billion dollars, that's with a B, almost as much as the entire rest of the field combined and got little for it. There are many examples of well-financed candidates losing. See the examples that I wrote in the arguments in your voters pamphlet. Huge donations from a wealthy individual didn't enable Bueller to unseat Kate Brown a couple of years ago either. Money just isn't as important a factor as people assume that it is. Sure, there's a strong correlation. The winner is usually the candidate with the most money, but it's not causation. The basic popularity of the candidate is the common factor enabling them to both win the most votes and to raise the most money. And of course, there are also examples of candidates who are so popular that they don't need to raise much money and they can win without it. After all, Joe Biden won some states despite having barely campaigned in them at all. Bloomberg lost and Biden won despite the money. We shouldn't forget that. Now let's talk about influence. What typically happens is that campaign contributions, uh, sorry, I haven't been moving my slides. My apologies. Uh, donors typically uh, will give their contributions toward the candidates who are already ideologically in line with the donor. If my campaign slogan is a chicken in every pot and the National Chicken Council gives my campaign a million dollars, they aren't influencing me because I already supported their interests. And if there's no influence, there's no corruption. They aren't changing how I would act if elected. They're just helping me to get elected by helping me to get my message out to voters. So that legislature got a contribution from X and then they voted on something that X wanted. Grumble, grumble, right? Well, now you've got to ask, were they going to vote that way anyway? Or did they change their vote because of the contribution? This question is essential because if they voted their conscience, there was no corruption. If they abandoned their principles, there was. People generally go into politics because they're passionate and have a strong ideology. That makes them inherently hard to corrupt. What environmentalist politician, for example, is going to vote for more pollution because of a campaign contribution? That's so unlikely that it sounds comical, particularly when you consider that most politicians are in uncompetitive districts and they know they'll be reelected regardless of how much money they raised. It looks silly in the competitive expensive districts too, Who's going to abandon their ideology for a contribution that amounts to a couple tenths of a percent of their campaign budget? It's too small to matter. They don't need to make that donor happy and a retiring or term limited politician truly has no one to please. A corrupting donation has to be made to a candidate who disagrees with the donor. That is inherently very risky. Doesn't it make more sense to support someone who already agrees with you than to try and probably fail to turn someone who disagrees? Now, I'm not saying money isn't important. It is, it really is. It takes money to get your message out. That's why money is so central to freedom of expression. It takes money to hire a speechwriter or to print up handbills or to put an ad on the radio or TV. That money is spent on political expression. And without the money, the expression couldn't take place or it wouldn't reach as many people. That's why I argue so strongly that limiting money is in fact limiting speech and it's limiting political speech the most dangerous kind of speech for government to have any power over. But speech does not vote. Dollars do not vote. Individual people do. Political expression can try to persuade voters, but that's it. It doesn't mark their ballots for them. Persuasion is engaging. It's informative. It makes people think. That's a good thing, and we want more of that. We'll have less of that if we have limits. But from the overblown fear that an elected official's actions might be swayed by campaign contributions, the solution offered, Measure 107, is to take away my rights 
and take away your rights to support the candidates and causes we honestly believe in. I get riled up about this because even if some legislature does get corrupted by a contribution, they're the ones doing evil. But that's not what this measure is targeting. This measure targets you and me because of what somebody else might do. It's wrong to take away one person's rights because of someone else's actions. This measure doesn't even try to be narrowly tailored. It's taking aim at all contributions with no attempts to distinguish honest support, honest support from the very rare attempts to manipulate elected officials. Measure 107 would be an enormous loss of freedom for a tiny and uncertain benefit. And I think if we spent some effort into trying to come up with a solution uh, to look at special interest favoring litigation, uh, legislation, instead of politi people supporting politicians, we'd be much better for it. I see I'm out of time, thank you. Thank you very much, Kyle, I appreciate that. Um, and now you guys get to answer a couple of questions from me. Um, question one, it is my understanding that even if the measure does not pass, it's almost certain Oregon will see some campaign finance regulations move forward. Uh, that's because of an April opinion by the Oregon Supreme Court in which justices reverse themselves ruling that campaign contribution limits are not inherently unconstitutional. Uh, Multnomah County and the city of Portland, which passed limits in 2016 and 2018 respectively, are already enforcing them. Uh, keeping that in mind, is amending the constitution in measure 107 all that important? Uh, Kyle, you get to answer first. My back. Yes. Okay, so I think that this measure will not have no effect. It will certainly have an effect. What it would do is remove from the Oregon constitutions the protections for political speech that still exist there. Even though the court has changed its mind and said that uh, contribution limits, for, say, are not inherently unconstitutional, they have to be subject to as applied challenges, I still want the Oregon constitution to read as it does today. I think the Oregon Constitution has a, a, a brilliant uh, section protecting speech. It says no law shall be passed restraining the free expression of opinion or restricting the right to speak right or print freely, freely on any subject, whatever. I don't wanna add except politics after that because I think politics is the most important thing to keep the government out of. I want to keep as much freedom for people to participate in the political process, to express themselves politically as much or as little as they want. And I don't want the government to ever come in and tell someone, stop, you've spoken enough and now we're gonna make you shut up. Thank you, Kyle, I appreciate that answer. And now, uh, Dan, same question, you have three minutes. Ah, uh, three minutes now, can, uh, I'm gonna share my screen again. Can you all see that? I assume that you can. Um, yes, the after working on it for 14 years, I managed to get the Oregon Supreme Court this year to reverse the 1997 Van Atta versus Peasling decision, which was that the Oregon Constitution did not uh, did not allow limits on on campaign contributions. Of course, Oregon has exactly the same um, free speech clause as 37 other states, 
and no other state court uh, has ever ruled that, the, that that free speech clause uh, prevents limits on contributions. Only Oregon in 1997. And uh, after a lot of effort, we got the Oregon Supreme Court unanimously uh, this April to reverse that decision and instead decide that Oregon's free speech clause doesn't apply at all to campaign contributions because contributions are a transfer of property and are not speech. That really means that measure uh, 107 has no effect on um, whether or not uh, contribution limits can be adopted either by the legislature or by the people uh, using the initiative process. The legislature will probably address this, almost certainly address the subject in the next session, and it will almost certainly be the subject of, uh, of an initiative for, for the year uh, 2022 as well. So it, what boils, it boils down to really is that uh, what the measure is about is um, the, uh, the disclaimer requirements that I indicated earlier. The, um, there's been no Oregon court case striking down those requirements, um, but there has been memorandum memoranda uh, circulated by the attorney general and by the by legislative council that, it, that state that we can't have any more disclosure in Oregon of, of the sources of campaign money because that would violate Oregon's free speech clause. Um, it hasn't been tested in court because Oregon hasn't adopted such laws uh, until uh, our Portland and Multnomah County measures, which have now passed uh, muster on the, on the disclaimer requirements as well. Um, so what Measure 107 does, it is ensures that the Supreme Court can't backtrack, can't go back to its 1997 position that um, contribution limits aren't allowed by the Oregon Constitution, and they cannot decide that the Oregon Constitution uh, forbids the kind of disclaimer requirements that, we, that, um, that would be important. Disclaimer requirements can have a, a, a dramatic impact, and they apply also to independent expenditures. In 2014, the, the Chevron Corporation attempted to take over the city of uh, Richmond, California, uh, by running its own candidates for mayor and city council and spending $3 million on it for a city of 100,000 people. But all of their ads had to say on them, major funding Chevron Corporation, because that was required by California law. They, uh, Chevron outspent the opposing environmentalist slate by 50 to one. Nevertheless, all of the Chevron candidates lost because they were identified with the corporate interests. Thank you very much, Dan. You wanna take down your slide? Take down my slide. Hmm. I'll try to figure out how to do that. Um, you need to oh. click your stop sharing button on your screen. Stop sharing. Currently isn't one. Um, my screen has gone into a very small little thing. It's small now. It's a small screen. It's not big and it doesn't have those buttons. Uh, there we go. The there you go. Back. Very, very good. Okay, okay. got it back. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, now I get to ask uh, my second question, and um, the question is, if the measure passes, uh, political pundits that I've been talking to see Oregon lawmakers spending next year's legislative session debating what campaign finance rules should look like in state races. Uh, that is a process that many can see becoming angry and bitter 
and taking up weeks of precious legislative time as different factions try their best to preserve power. If this happens, does it help or hinder your original premise on this subject? Now, Dan, uh, it's your turn uh, to answer first. Well, I don't quite understand the question. Yes, deciding on, of course, measure 107 itself doesn't adopt any limits at all. And deciding what the level of limits should be will certainly be a, a contentious uh, matter. Let me share my screen again here um, with this one. Boom. Can you see, I assume that you can see that. Um, oops. Well, that's not going to work. Um, many, I guess we'll have to make it look like that. Um, many states uh, limit the amount of uh, funding that can contributions to the candidates for governor. Here's some examples. Connecticut is, is as low as $250. States, of course, uh, 45 states limit the contributions to legislators. Um, a lot of them have uh, limits of under $500 uh, to them, and these states have limits of $1,000 per person to legislative candidates. So yes, it'll be contentious, but um, but the, the alternative is the current system of no limits, where uh, every candidate has to be afraid that anyone like a Phil Knight can come in and contribute a million dollars to their opponent. And in Oregon legislative races, um, contributions of $50,000 or more to an individual candidate are not unusual. Um, in fact, the, uh, the um, Institute for Money and State Politics determined that in, in 2018, Oregon legislative candidates depended more on large contributions, that is contributions of $1,000 or more each, than the candidates in any other state except for uh, California and um, and Illinois. So even though we have a, a much smaller population and much smaller uh, media markets. The, the other thing I, I would like to point out is that when uh, Kyle Merkley uh, explained that, uh, that it, there's no corruption if people, uh, if donors simply um, contribute to candidates or are ideologically consistent with them, that really is the problem. And this slide indicates that money selects candidates. The real primary in Oregon is money. Democrats and liberals need the support of unions to fund their campaigns. Republicans and conservatives need the support of corporations and unions and corporations examine potential candidates in advance. There's no need for quid pro quo corruption. So they sell, the money selects the candidates in the first place. And then they don't need to say, well, you need to vote you know, uh, for us on this particular bill because they've already selected someone with money, with the money who is ideologically consistent. And of course, Kyle gives a couple of examples of people who spent less money and won or people who spent more money and failed. Of course, anyone can spend a lot of money and fail, but as I indicated 95% of the time in, in Oregon legislative races, uh, the candidate who spends the most money wins. Um, and as far as the notion that environmentalists can't be corrupted, just read the Oregonian series Polluted by Money from last year, and it showed you that Oregon, Oregon politicians are corrupted by money, particularly when it comes to protecting the environment. Thank you very much, Dan. Now, can you take that slide down? 
Can I take it down? There you go again. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. There. No? Okay, now no. we're going to listen right here. Uh, Kyle, uh, same question, three minutes. As a quick rejoinder on the environmentalist point, uh, you need to ask, would they have voted that way anyway without the contribution? And that's the major thing that we just don't know. You'd have to ask them. Now, in asking the question, uh, you talk about what might happen in the legislature, uh, what's the process of making this bill going to look like, and I agree, it's going to be probably incredibly ugly. We will see politics at its worst. We will see attempts to secure advantages for one political party or the other. There is no safeguard in Measure 107 that requires the limits that will be adopted to be fair in any sense of the word. Uh, it's really a blank check on government power. So the politicians are going to try to write the most favorable bill they can to protect their interests against others, against the other major party, and importantly, I believe, against the minor parties too. Uh, this is, is really uh, much more expansive than you think when you first look at it. The measure could have been written to only cover elections to public office, but it's actually more broad than that. It could have guaranteed that limits wouldn't advantage viewpoints, uh, you know, certain viewpoints over others, but it doesn't do that. It could have required limits to be tied to electioneering, electioneering activity, but it doesn't do that either. And I'm particularly concerned that political organizations may lose access to the courts because they won't be able to afford litigation anymore. Thank you very much, Kyle. Uh, and now what we'd like to do is to give each of our speakers um, a two minute closing statement. And because Dan was uh, first on the opening statement, we're gonna have Kyle uh, be first on the closing statement. And so Kyle, we're gonna give you two minutes. Okay, thank you. Measure 107 is a Trojan horse. It won't do what you think. It won't limit the rich. It will actually disadvantage you against them. That's because rich people will just switch from donating to candidates to making independent expenditures, which have enjoyed First Amendment protection since Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976. Rich people will still get their message out. Contribution limits are going to hurt the people who don't have enough money to fund their speech by themselves. Most people need to pool their resources with others in order to spread their message. Political organizations are simply vehicles through which individuals cooperate to jointly exercise their individual rights to political expression. Contribution limits will make this cooperation less effective by reducing the money available to political organizations. Huge organizations may still be able to raise money well because they already have an enormous reach. But small organizations, particularly like the ones that I care about, will suffer greatly. Small organizations often rely on the generosity of a small number of large donors. For example, the Libertarian Party of Oregon may become unable to fund our privately conducted primary election, and it certainly couldn't afford litigation anymore. Did you know that a Republican candidate went to court to try to kick all of our nominees off the ballot this year? Limits would make it impossible for us to defend ourselves. Democrats and Republicans have an interest in keeping political minorities down. It's no surprise to me that they talk about bipartisan support for contribution limits. They want to build a moat to defend the existing power structure. Censorship always benefits the powerful and harms the powerless. I want everyone to still have the freedom to speak truth to power, and that does involve spending money. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my argument. There is much, much more in your voters pamphlet. Please read it before you vote, and thank you. 
Kyle, thank you very much. Appreciate that. And now, Dan, uh, you have two minutes for a closing statement. All right, I'm starting my video. Uh, um, uh, I have just bipartisan support for camp for contribution limits. That's absurd. The only the only thing that's bipartisan about campaign finance reform in Oregon is that both parties are adamantly against it. The biggest barrier to campaign finance reform in Oregon for for a long time has been um, the Oregon Democratic Party. The Oregon legislature has never adopted limits on contributions. The only reason they would be doing it next year is because they know if they don't, then there will be an initiative to do it. And I suspect that there will be an initiative to do it anyway. And then everyone can vote on the kind of limits that they want and not leave it up to the legislature. Um, Kyle says the rich will do independent expenditures anyway. Well, that's why that's why the measure allows for taglines on political ads in the Multnomah County and Portland measure, political ads have to identify their the top five funders, the, the amounts that they are spending, and the sources of funds that the, from which those funders received their um, their funding, their their the businesses that they're engaged in. And I mentioned the city of Richmond potential uh, takeover by um, by Chevron being foiled. The same thing really happened in Seattle in 2018, where Amazon and others spent millions of dollars to try to take over the Seattle City Council, but Washington had a requirement that their ads identify the funder. And so uh, that didn't work. Um, I would also point out that um, in uh, Kyle's voter pamphlet statements, let me uh, share my screen here a second. I think it's important to look at Kyle's voters pamphlet statements where he lists uh, quotations from a whole variety of groups that, suppose, that that indicate, that seem to indicate they oppose this measure. He quotes Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. This measure will not only allow us to shine a light on special interests. Oh, pardon me. He, that's not his quote from it. His quote is one above this. Boom. He, his quote is, this measure goes too far in amending Oregon's constitution and undermines our freedom of speech protections. When in fact, Planned Parenthood Advocates endorses Measure 107. He did that for a variety of other groups in the voters pamphlet as well. He quotes them on a measure that was on the ballot 14 years ago with a very strong implication that they're against Measure 107, when in fact they endorse Measure 107. Thank you very much, Dan, appreciate it. Now you wanna take your slide down. There we go. That worked. Thank you All very right. much. Uh, both of you, I really appreciate you being here today. Uh, I've enjoyed it very much so far. What I'm going to do is I'm going to turn over the next part of the program to my co-moderator, uh, Cindy Condon. Uh, and I'm going to say goodbye to you too and uh, enjoy the questions from our audience today. Thanks again. Good afternoon and thank you. Um, for the presentations this morning. And now we're gonna move on to our question and answer portion of the program. As Jan mentioned, this is our fourth virtual Salem City Club meeting. So we know most of our listeners are experienced Zoomers by now and know how to ask questions of our speakers. For this question and answer portion, all those registered and logged in on a device have a raise hand button at the bottom of the screen screen. If you have a question you would like to ask our speakers,
please click on the button to raise your hand and we will call on people as we can. Your microphone will be activated when your name is called, but you must click on your microphone icon to ask your question. Given our limited time and as is our custom, please ask a question rather than comment on what the speakers have presented. This is much the same as our live programs. If you are joining by telephone, please press a star nine to raise and lower your hand and star six to mute and unmute your phone. So with that, um, we'll look to see who has, if there are any hands raised in our chat room. And I don't see any uh, questions coming right out of the box. So I'm gonna start with the first uh, question. Um, and this is, is to both of you. Um, the campaign finance reform proposals have been developed over a long period of time. In 2006, Oregon voters resoundingly rejected a ballot measure for a constitutional amendment for campaign finance reform while approving a companion ballot measure for statutory limits on campaign contributions on the same ballot. How does ballot measure 107, which we're considering this election, differ from the constitutional amendment on the ballot and defeated in 2006? And what are the similarities? So um, Kyle, do you wanna take that first? Sure, I'll, I'll start first. Uh, measure 46, I'll argue, is very, very similar to measure 107. And that's actually the reason why, as Dan said, I quoted from a large number of arguments that various people had placed uh, in the voters pamphlet back then in 2006. Uh, I'm not happy about him trying to uh, cast aspersions on me about that. Um, I was very clearly just quoting those organizations. Uh, the first paragraph of my argument statement said that Oregonians wisely rejected the very similar measure 46 in 2006. And I said, here are some quotes uh, from opposing voters pamphlet arguments that still resonate today. I wanted to quote these because the objections that were raised then are still correct and they're relevant again. And yeah, some organizations have inconsistent positions between these two measures, and I think that's their problem. That's not my problem. Uh, I was merely quoting them. But uh, the straight answer to your question is, I think these are extremely similar uh, ballot measures. They have the same objectives. Uh, there are some differences, but I think those are relatively minor. So Dan? Um, can you hear me? Yes. Um, the Measure 47, pardon me, Measure 46 of 2006 was a very simple uh, one sentence measure that said that, um, that the people using the initiative process or legislature can adopt uh, laws limiting, limiting uh, or otherwise regulating contributions and expenditures. Measure 107, as we went uh, uh, through it before, is, is quite a bit longer and much more specific. And in fact, if anything, Measure 107, when it comes to campaign contribution limits, is an anti-campaign finance reform measure. Uh, Kyle should actually like it because what it says um, in subsection C is, pardon me, in subsection A is that it can limit contributions made in connection with political campaigns, but only in a manner that does not prevent candidates and political committees from gathering the resources necessary for effective advocacy. So it actually places a, a lower bound on how low the limits can be. Um, measure 46 didn't do that. In fact, there is no such limit currently under the new 
Oregon Supreme Court decision because that decision said that the Oregon Free Speech Clause doesn't apply to contributions at all. So if anything, uh, Measure 107, when it comes to contribution limits, actually goes in, from my point of view, goes in the wrong direction uh, by putting a lower limit, a very subjective uh, lower limit on, 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 the contrib on contribution limits. Okay, thank you for that. And I don't see any um, hands raised in our, um, from our members. And so with that, I will ask another question. Um, I guess I should start my, my video. Um, so, and first to you, Dan, on this one, couldn't such a constitutional amendment uh, with companion statutory measures limiting campaign contributions make it much more difficult for people of lesser means to run for public office while those of, of more means could fund their own campaigns with little oversight? Um, actually, the opposite is true. Um, studies show that um, campaign contribution limits actually, uh, actually disadvantage incumbents. Incumbents uh, are able to collect very large contributions uh, in Oregon now because of the lack of limits. And a study by the Brennan Center uh, from earlier uh, this year indicated that um, contribution limits in states with, with low limits, let's say you know, around $500 for legislative races or less, actually have far greater competition when it comes to those, when it comes to those races. And there's far more competition for, for incumbents than in states with higher limits or in the case of Oregon in, in, with no limits. We have an extremely high incumbent uh, re-election rate because incumbents can just go scoop up, scoop up all the money. As far as folks with individual resources, again, the what you can do under Measure 107 is require uh, taglines that indicate that the, that the candidate is self-funding, and that's that's what we have in Portland and, and Multnomah County at this point. In addition, there are, I mean, again, Measure 47 itself doesn't adopt limits. Uh, the limits could be adjusted so that if someone self-funds, then the limits can adjust on the other candidates in the same race. Um, or in, in the case of public funding systems, like in Portland, if some candidate uh, massively self-funds, then the amount of public funding can change. So Measure 107 doesn't adopt any limits, doesn't adopt anything, uh, any specific requirements. It simply says that the legislature or people using the initiative can adopt such can adopt such requirements in the future, of course. Um, as I said, it's probably going to be by initiative. And that means we'll all get to vote, we'll, we'll all get to vote on that as well. Kyle, any comments? Uh, I think without the legislation at hand to take a look at, it's, it's too early to say how it would affect the ability of ordinary people to run for office. Uh, we just don't have enough information yet. So I, I guess I decline to try to answer. Okay, thank you for that. And we do have some questions from the listeners um, or watcher viewers, Zoomers, I should say. So Ron Ekas, uh, you have the floor. Thank you. Um, my question is related to the Citizens United decision. In that decision, the Supreme Court was fairly specific in saying that the free speech um, did not free, the constitutional free speech did not um, prevent the uh, 
putting of limits on contributions to candidates uh, because of a concern about corruption. So uh, are you, um, what do you think the relevance of the Supreme Court um, specific, specific statement that <clears throat> this does not violate free, free speech? Uh, what are the implications for the measure 107? Ron, is that directed at um, both? both. Yes, both. Okay. Dan, do you want to take that? Um, sure. Um, Citizens United, as, as Ron indicates, um, said that, um, that you can have limits on contributions for candidates, and that's been the, the, the doctrine at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, from the beginning of campaign finance regulation uh, back in about 1906. Um, more, uh, the Citizens United also expressly upheld the federal disclaimer requirements that is requiring the political ads uh, identify their funders to a small, a very small extent under, under federal law, but they, Supreme Court and Citizens United said that disclaimer requirements um, simply increase the information available to voters uh, and that they are not uh, restricted by the First Amendment. Um, when, uh, you know, of course, the uh, addition of, of another justice who is probably hostile to campaign finance reform in the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, um, uh, looks problematic. Of course, um, depending upon the outcome of this election, uh, I think there's a real possibility that there will be another, uh, at least two members added to the court in, uh, in the near future. Um, it is, I think it's... Um, allowing uh, the court to be skewed six to three uh, by, uh, by decidedly minority interests is, uh, should not be acceptable. Kyle? I thought Citizens United was a, a very important, obviously very interesting decision. Uh, what it clarified for us is that the First Amendment only permits the imposition of limits to try to prevent quid pro quo corruption. Among other things, it does not enable limits to try to level the playing field, for instance, whatever that means. It is specifically looking at contributions to candidates for political favors. And it protected the rights in this case of a nonprofit corporation to spend money to advertise a documentary that they had made. Uh, the laws at the time had made that a felony uh, it was illegal for them to advertise and promote uh, this documentary that they had made. Uh, clearly, the, the, the laws at the time were censoring political speech. That's why the case existed in the first place. So when I look at this, I look at the case as being very fundamentally about your right to cooperate with others to express your political opinions. It means you can join together with other people and spend money uh, to promulgate your political speech. Um, I think it really ought to be an irrelevant detail that that particular group was organized as a nonprofit corporation. I look at it more generally. Here was an association of people who pooled their resources for the purpose of publicly cr criticizing a sitting government official who was seeking higher office. That's the kind of thing we should celebrate. That's political engagement at its best. And we don't need to be limiting the people who want to criticize elected officials. They deserve all the criticism they get. Okay, thank you for that. And we have another question from George Dyer. George, there you go. You have the floor. 
This is for both speakers. Uh, is there any evidence that campaign contribution limitations uh, affects voter turnout? Kyle, do you want to take that first? Uh, that is not something that I know about. Couldn't say. Dan? Uh, nor do I know about it, um, except that if that the lack of contributions, I would think, can, would tend to um, tend to discourage folks from getting involved in politics because they see that it's controlled by by billionaires like the Koch brothers. You know, Kyle mentions groups pooling their resources to do things like put out Hillary the movie. It, that's actually it was actually funded by millionaires and billionaires. It wasn't it wasn't funded by small contributions. Okay, thank you. And now there's a question that's been raised by Chris Brantley in the Q&A box. Neither speaker spoke to the time and effort required of elected officials spend raising money. In your opinion, so this would be to both of you, would this ballot measure change that dynamic? So Kyle, do you want to take that first? Yeah, sure. I'll give it a try. I think the answer, unfortunately, is it's unclear. If people need to raise less money, then it stands to reason they'll spend less time doing it. But if they need to contact more people to be able to raise enough money, then they may spend more time doing that. So on which end does the balance go? I really don't know. Thank you, Dan. Um, I would think that um, it would mean that candidates would spend less time meeting with the heads of unions in Oregon and meeting with uh, the executives of large corporations. Um, we have had these limits of $500 per individual and no corporate or union contributions in place now in Multnomah County and uh, for two election cycles and in Portland for one election cycle. And the candidates here say that yes, they do, they do of course need to reach out to more people in order to fund their campaigns under those limits. But they, they find that that is beneficial because it, it exposes them uh, to the views of more people uh, so that they're just not meeting in boardrooms um, with corporate executives or, or heading out to the offices of the unions. Okay, thank you. I'll turn on my video. Um, I do not see any more hands raised or uh, Q&A uh, asked um, in writing. And so with that, I want to thank both of you for appearing here today and your presentation certainly an answer to Jan's questions, but um, also for answering uh, the unscripted questions from the audience. It's a, it's a real feature of City Club and we think it uh, provides information to the community that they might not otherwise have. So with that, I'll turn it over to Sharon. Thank you very much. Thank you guys for coming in to speak for us, speak to us today about your, uh, uh, your, the measure. You both presented some very interesting um, arguments and we appreciate that. So thank you. Um, City Club on November 13th will present a postmortem on the 2020 elections. Dr. Ed Dover will help us understand the local and national impact of the 2020 elections. We hope you will join us. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend.